It's time for this week's episode of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. Take it away, Tom. Good morning, and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. Let's start today's show with a little music. The song is called Natchez Trace by Bella Fleck, in honor of today's show, which we are calling The Devil's Backbone, The History of the Natchez Trace. In the studio with me, I have two experts on the Natchez Trace. Our regular co-host, Dr. Barry Gidcombe, actually wrote his doctoral dissertation on the history of the Natchez Trace. And our special guest is Tony Turnbow. Tony is a Natchez Trace scholar, having studied its history for more than 30 years. Mr. Turnbow is the current treasurer of the Natchez Trace Parkway Association. He's also the author of uh, several articles, including The Natchez Trace in the War of 1812, which was published in the Journal of Mississippi History, and most recently, the full-length book published by Time Tunnel Media titled Hardened to Hickory, the Missing Chapter in Andrew Jackson's Life. Good morning to you both. Morning, Tom. Good morning. Tony, for those listeners who may not know what it is, uh, describe what the Natchez Trace is today. Today, the Natchez Trace is a national parkway uh, or national park, one of about six national parkways in the U.S. The the Park Service created the Natchez Trace Parkway um, uh, in the 1930s to commemorate the old trail between Nashville and Natchez. Um, And beyond there, it gets a little murky uh, because the old trace was actually three different Chickasaw trails over time. So they try to compress all of that into one interpretation. So as you drive down the trace today, you're driving at 50 miles per hour right? on a beautiful road, probably the best road in Tennessee uh, as far as the condition of the road itself, Yeah, and it's owned by the National Park Service, this little strip of roadway all the way from Nashville to Natchez, Mississippi. Right, 444 miles. 444 miles. And there are stops along the way, sort of historic sites and scenic viewing areas. Uh, and all kinds of things that that people get get to see. It's it's a beautiful beautiful drive. That's what it is today. Now it's had a a pretty incredible history. Barry, in your dissertation, you wrote, "quote For a little more than two decades, the Natchez Trace was the most significant highway in the Old Southwest and one of the most important in the nation." Why? Well, a couple of reasons. One, it was a trail that uh, a, a pathway that many of the Western settlers. Uh, were moving west. Uh, another, it was very important to the farmers in the Ohio Valley and in, in Tennessee. Uh, farmers would float their produce down the uh, the Mississippi River down to Natchez. They would uh, would sell their their cargo there, and then they would walk back home. They couldn't take their flatboats back up the up the river, so they would walk back home along the old Natchez Trace. On the Natchez Trace. What did they do with their flatboats once they got to Natchez? They would just sell them for, for lumber. 
Is that right? So I had heard, but I don't know this if this is true. Maybe you can answer this. I heard that a number of very fine houses in Natchez are built from the lumber from some of those old flat boats. Is that is that a story you've heard before? Is there I haven't to heard it? that before, but yeah. I, I'm sure that some of that is was put to that use. Yeah. So what's the origin of the trace? So the, I think of the Natchez trace now as mostly uh, late 18th and, and 19th century history, but I think it dates prior to that. What's what's the early origin of the Natchez Trace? Where did it begin? Well, it was a it was originally a trail, a series of trails that went from South America up to what today is Canada, one of the four oldest trails in North America. And there was a point along the Tennessee River, today it's called the Muscle Shoals area, and early on before they created a lake there, uh, it was called it was a wild scenic river. Uh, it, was a, it was an area where people could ford the Tennessee River during dry seasons. And so it, it created kind of a funnel for, for people traveling from one point to the other. And so because of the artifacts they found along the route, they know that it was an early immigration route. But later when the, uh, the tribes came into the area that we know today as the Chickasaw and Choctaw, it was primarily a Chickasaw Trail. They called it their Peace Trail from Natchez going north. The Choctaw had a separate trail, the pathway to the Choctaw Nation. So this was primarily a Chickasaw, and they, the Chickasaw um, lived in the area all the way up to what's now Paducah, Kentucky. So they hunted in that, that area, and, and they would travel this route, this trail, uh, to go up into Kentucky to, to hunt. So this area is primarily hunting ground yeah. f- for, the, for these people, and so they're using this pathway through the woods uh, to get from point A to point B. Yeah, but, but something that might surprise you is the old Chickasaw Trail actually went on the west side of the Tennessee River rather than through this area. Really? Up through what's now Shiloh National Park uh, on up to, uh, to Kentucky. Huh. And then when, it, when the settlers moved into the, the Cumberland Settlement in Nashville, then they created a path from the, the Chickasaw Trail. They called it the Glover's Trace that went through what is now Charlotte Avenue down to the, uh, the Cumberland River. So, so Natchez, what's the significance of Natchez? We think now if you're taking this trip 444 miles from Nashville, Tennessee, which is a major metropolitan area, to Natchez, Mississippi, why, why, didn't, why not all the way to New Orleans or even just Vicksburg if you're looking for a, a port on the Mississippi River? Why Natchez? What was the significance of it? Well, Natchez, uh, it, just, it became a very important uh, port city. The, uh, the French were there, then... The French were the first to be there, then the then the English, then the Spanish, then the English again, um, and it just became an important commercial area there in the uh, in the lower uh, Mississippi River Valley. It's a wonderful city. I've had the opportunity to drive the length of the Natchez Trace just a few years ago on a family vacation. I dragged my teenage daughters along and my wife, and we visited family in Texas and decided to leave Texas early enough to have lunch in New Orleans. Stop in Natchez, spend the night, and then let's just take the trace all the way home. Our girls were just driving age at the time, and we thought the Natchez Trace is a perfect place to learn how to drive. If we can only drive 50 miles an hour on a very well, uh, a pretty straight, flat road, it's a great place to do it. And so we got to Natchez, and I immediately was taken by the architecture. You sense the oldness of that city. Uh, As you said, Natchez has had European influence in it from its very earliest beginnings and you you can sense that in that town there's a there's a feel of of history sort of permeates the fabric of that community it's a it's a wonderful place to go if you've never been you, you definitely want to make make a stop there yeah. uh, just, and just prior to the civil war it was it was actually wealthier than paris france uh, because, because of, of the river traffic yes. and cotton i right. suppose yes 
uh, traveling through that port. Um, much of the trace was traver- traversed through Native American lands. How did the United States government get permission to use the lands? Because I think there's some overlap, right? That the the United States was using that road while it was still under the control of the Native American tribes. How, how did that play out? Well, some of the uh, uh, some of the research that that I did, and, and I piggybacked on a lot of research from the uh, the National Park Service over several decades, uh, was that that uh, President Jefferson sought to get permission to establish a post road from uh, all the way from Nashville to uh, to Natchez, and had to obtain permission from the Chickasaw and the Choctaw. Uh, and by post road, you mean uh, to carry the to mail. carry the mail, right? To the carry post. the mail, exactly. Right. I'm sorry, to carry the mail. Now, uh, the idea was that this would become a road that would eventually see see more travel and jefferson was anxious to uh uh would I, was anxious that the chickasaw the choctaw would set up stands along the way or would allow stands to be set up a, along the way to uh for the convenience of the travelers and it didn't happen right off uh right off the bat like he hoped it would and uh uh, there was some frustration there, but eventually they uh, convinced the the Native Americans themselves that this was this would be a way to make money. But it didn't seem to really catch on until uh, the Chickasaw and the Choctaw. Uh, essentially, the first of most of these stands were uh, run by Europeans who had actually married into the tribe, into the Chickasaw or Choctaw tribe. Right. Um, Tony, you mentioned in your book, there's a little bit of controversy. Jefferson certainly had his eye westward right. throughout his presidency. And it becomes clear, I think, in some of his writing that the Natchez Trace, the Natchez Road, is kind of critical to to his thinking as far as westward expansion goes. Um, but you mentioned in your book that although it started as a post road and, and that was sort of the purpose in it, maybe there was a little bit of a covert yeah, the aspect the, of this as well. Post row was a cover story. Article one, section eight of the Constitution, which was strictly interpreted at the time, only allows the federal government. This is a, a surprise to most people. Only allows the federal government to build roads for postal purposes. That's the way it was interpreted, not for military purposes. Jefferson saw he had a problem because if the country was ever attacked at New Orleans, he had no way to move soldiers south to New Orleans to protect them. In order to do that, he had to be able to. Uh, carry supplies on wagons and at that time the they had downsized the the size of the u.s army to about three thousand men and they relied pretty much on a militia system you know where every man was supposed to arm himself with provisions and a firearm and be able to show up at a moment's notice to defend his community well most of the settlers lived from columbia north i mean this was the, the literal southwestern edge of the american frontier the contiguous u.s states and if we were attacked, there was no way to get those militiamen down through the Chickasaw, Choctaw Nation down to the Gulf Coast. So Jefferson realized he had to have a wagon highway to be able to move troops, to be able to move the supplies with the troops. You have to feed the troops. And uh, so he, he had to figure out a way to create this wagon highway. And his purposes were really dual. One was to be able to move the troops, but the other was to be able to open the area up for settlement 
his idea was so that they, the settlers would go down and form militias in these communities where they would be able to defend. So uh, and for public purposes, it was a postal route, but, but in private, they did talk, talk about it as a military highway. As a military highway. In fact, if you look at the letter that Jefferson wrote for the, uh, asking for funds for the Lewis and Clark expedition, it was a con- he wrote on the very top of the letter, confidential, because they didn't have the wherewithal to be able to enforce it. Um, half of the letter is talking about needing money for the Lewis and Clark expedition, which was where they were, the actual mission was to go west and find a military route where the military could go and secure the Pacific. Uh, but the second half of the letter is actually devoted to the Mississippi area, the Natchez Trace area, and the importance of being able to secure the Mississippi River to protect New Orleans. And so it was all part of Jefferson's idea eventually for the U.S. to become this continental nation, Atlantic to Pacific. Right. And in order to do that, he had to be able to control New Orleans, which it, led up to the War of 1812. You didn't have to be a military genius to look at New Orleans and see its significance from a military standpoint. That if you could take the biggest port in the south that connects to the Mississippi River, which splits this continent in half, whoever controls that. Yeah. has a good shot of controlling the whole North American continent. Yeah, in fact, Je- Britain certainly was talking about it uh, leading towards the War of 1812. So so Jefferson completely understood that. And, and so the Natchez Trace and its significance absolutely plays into plays into that to that role. Yeah. And in fact, he said there's one spot on the globe that will control the future of this this country. And he said that's New Orleans. How did the relationship with Native American, Native American tribes change over time? Was it impacted by Indian removal? Did the Natchez Trace play a role? With that, it did because it opened the air during the War of 1812. A lot of the soldiers who went south, they had no real idea what was in the Chickasaw Choctaw Nation. It was uh, kind of an unknown for them. But during the War of 1812, they became very familiar with it. They traveled the Natchez Trace. The, the road itself was improved for military purposes during the war. And when they came back, they they realized, you know, we have there's some valuable land down there. In fact, I met a descendant of one of the. Um, Soldiers who said, you know, he, he bought a farm within a mile of where he's, he camped under Jackson's command uh, because these soldiers saw this land that they wanted, and they when they came back, they pushed Jackson to open the land up for settlement. Are there Native American sites along the Natchez Trace today that people can, can visit that sort of speak to that history, that side of the history? Yes, there are some sites, but the Park Service interprets most of it as being, you know, eight miles away. There's a very important Native American site. So it's disappointing to a lot of travelers, but you have to actually get off the parkway to go into Pontotoc, Mississippi, for example, the center of the old Chickasaw Nation, where you can see a lot of the old original sites. Right, right. You, get, you do get to see a lot of the the old woodland era uh, burial mounds and the Mississippian era uh, ceremonial mounds. They're, they're amazing the to trace. see. They're amazing to see. Well, it's uh, time to take a break. Let's take a moment and listen to our sponsors. We'll be right back on History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. At Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram Fiat, you can always count on us for a great selection of late model, low mileage, one owner vehicles. All have been thoroughly inspected and are ready to go. You can even save time and buy online with our online shopping tool. Looking to sell your vehicle? Great news! We're paying top dollar for your trade. All makes, all models, and in any condition. Trade in and trade up today. At Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram Fiat, you can count on us. 
Hi, Terry Tillis from Tillis Jewelry. When you think of diamonds, what do you think of? Rare, precious, timeless, sparkles like the sun. They are timeless and nothing like them on earth. Then do you think, where do I buy local to buy the perfect ring? Maybe a diamond pendant or earrings or maybe a new diamond band. Look no further. Tillis Jewelry carries all your diamond and jewelry needs. Stop by and see our wonderful collection. And remember, if you don't know your diamonds, know your jeweler. Tillis Jewelry, downtown Columbia. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning is built to a higher standard so you can focus on the problems in your life that actually matter, like the stair that only creaks when everyone else in the house is asleep. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning, built to a higher standard. Call Davis Heating and Cooling at 931-388-2090 for all your home comfort needs. Davis Heating and Cooling is your local American Standard dealer and proudly serves the Murray County area. Find Davis Heating and Cooling online and on Facebook or call today, 388-2090. Are you thinking about a new fence? Maybe you need a pole bar. Then you should give Sands Fence Company a call. That's 931-309-1644. Will Sands has built his business based on the principles of honesty, quality, and integrity. Sands Fence Company has been in business for over 20 years, providing the community with farm, residential, and commercial fencing, as well as pole barns and buildings. Call today for a free estimate. Sands Fence Company, 931-309-1644. 931-309-1644. This is Dr. Dominic Mancini from the Dr. Gill Center. Have you been injured in a car accident? Are you still in pain? Untreated whiplash injuries to the spine may lead to future conditions, such as neck pain, low back pain, and headaches. The doctors at the Dr. Gill Center specialize in detecting and treating these conditions before they get worse. Our accident consultations are free. Call me, painfree.com, or call 615-551-9224. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. You're back on History's Hook. Uh, we're talking today about the Natchez Trace. We have uh, Barry Goodcomb, our regular co-host, along with Tony Turnbow, who is an expert and author on the Natchez Trace. Uh, Tony, you're an attorney by trade, not, not a historian by trade, uh, but a historian by training. Um what got you interested in history in general and in the Natchez Trace specifically? Well, I grew up in Lewis County, and I always loved the family stories about the history. I didn't realize how, mu- how accurate my family stories were until I started doing the research. My dad talked about, uh, in, the, in the old days, they, w- they would actually post wooden signs on trees as mile markers. And I thought, that just doesn't make any sense at all. But then I found actual records explaining that they did that. Um, so I loved the family stories, and in high school— I had an incredible history teacher, Jim Milan, who had a military background, and he loved telling about the people and the influence of history on the people. And he loved the Natchez Trace. And one day for extra credit, he took us out to the old trail, and he stood us on this old dirt path that I'd played on for years, had no idea what it was. And he said, let me tell you a story. And from that moment, I've been hooked because he told the story of the death of Mary Lewis. He told the story of Andrew Jackson bringing his soldiers down. And he said, all those soldiers marched on that same dirt path you're standing on today. And I was fascinated by that. And, you know, one of the stories he told about was Andrew Jackson became Old Hickory on the Natchez Trace. And I was disappointed that I couldn't find much about that part of the story of Jackson's life in the Jackson biographies. No one had written more than a couple of paragraphs to maybe five pages about it. I didn't know why. And it wasn't until I did, started doing the research of this book that I discovered that most of the documents were in private collections, which is why no one had ever explored it. Right, right. 
President Thomas Jefferson's postmaster general, Gideon Granger, described a part of the trace. After passing through sparsely settled areas, he said you came across a 186-mile section that was, quote, entirely in a state of wilderness. Barry, can you describe the wilderness and how people subsisted uh, on traveling on the trace when a good day's hike would be 20 miles and they have to face nothing but wilderness for about 186 yeah, if they could make it 20 miles, it, and sometimes it depended on the weather and whether it was the rainy season, but uh, probably the biggest obstacle was creeks, streams, uh, uh, waterways that they would have to, to ford or figure out how to get across. Uh, you know, we we take for granted today when we can just go across a bridge, but when you have to figure out a way to get everything you have across a waterway and you wind up having to swim across yourself and then you get to the other side and you have to take everything out of your backpacks and everything you have and spread it out and let it dry before you can (laughs) pack up again and and take off Um, that was probably uh, there's so many stories about the about the Natchez Trace and and the dangers of the Natchez Trace and we may get into this um, a little bit later with Tony I'd I'd like to get his uh, his take on the the book the actual book the devil's backbone uh that describing the trace but i think that was the most formidable obstacles were the the creeks streams uh swollen rivers and uh the fact that you could find yourself out in the middle of nowhere for long stretches of time for a long period of time. I used to take children, groups of children, out to the Natchez Trace when I worked at the James K. Polk Museum. We had a summer camp called Polk Academy and uh, groups of about 20 kids, and we'd take them out there, and we'd go to Meriwether Lewis State Park, and we'd talk about the trace. Mainly the purpose was to talk about traveling on the frontier and how difficult it was. And on the way back, I would always have them uh, count the number of bridges that they crossed because of that very reason. Water was... The elements were the great danger, right, for for people, despite, and we'll get into the Devil's Backbone story in just a few minutes, but crossing every creek was an incredibly dangerous proposition uh, for these people. How do they cross the big big rivers? I mean, they're crossing the Tennessee River. How are they getting the Duck River? How are they crossing those? Ferry boats. Well, let's say here in in Murray County, the Duck River, uh, John Gordon operated a ferry across it. There were times when the, the water was low enough, they would just drive the wagon down. The, the army that improved the road as a, as a wagon highway built ramps going down into the creeks, the, the larger, the smaller creeks and, uh, and rivers. Uh, and then during high water, uh, they would either, they could take the wagon, take the wheels off the wagons and float the wagons across the water. Or Colbert and, uh, and uh, Gordon had ferry boats that they would just pull the wagons onto and then take the passengers across. But before the ferries, and uh, Francis Bailey has a uh, an English traveler has a uh, an interesting account, though maybe slightly exaggerated account. He, he, he his writing is pretty dramatic. Uh, his accounts, but how they would uh, how they built flatboats or rafts, put everything on top of the, all their belongings on these rafts, and then in groups of three or four, they would swim these swim rafts across, across the river. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so think about that. So you you have a wagon load of supplies, your animals with you, and you've got to cross this river. How are we going to do it? They stop. They build a raft. So there's got to be tons of timber close by, you hope, figuring out a way to lash it together 
and then they're pushing them across by swimming. Can I can I read an excerpt from from your dissertation? Yes. This, this is from uh, Barry has this in his doctoral dissertation, uh, and it's this very instance, Barry, that you talked about. This is Francis Bailey, uh, seventeen ninety seven, talking about uh, getting across the the Tennessee River. He he writes this. Imagine now to yourself a river upwards of 1,200 miles long, with scarcely a single habitation on its banks the whole way. Are these so widely scattered as to be incapable of rendering any assistance to one floating on the wide bosom of its waters? Imagine us, I say, with this prospect before us, without any hope of ever reaching our companions, our heads just above water, our hands clinging to the raft and supporting our weary bodies, the trees and banks flying beyond us, and ourselves carried along with an astonishing rapidity. Uh, Bailey said they drifted downriver four or five miles before they got to the other side. Uh, So uh, harrowing accounts, and that's crossing one of the the big rivers. But even the little streams, often if the rivers were, the streams were swollen, if there had been a lot of rain, they had to unpack all of their wagons, hand carry everything across, load them back up. It's it's an an amazing thing journey and sometimes they even stopped and built their own bridges if the stream was small enough and they had enough help with them um it's it's absolutely incredible to me that they they could even could even do this so subsistence along this 444 mile journey uh could you buy supplies were there places where you could get material yeah there were stands built um in fact the natchez trace early was uh, an area known to attract robbers and highwaymen and when a group of travelers were killed in Murray County at, uh, at Swan Creek uh, around 1804, uh, the governor appealed to Thomas Jefferson and asked that he begin to build stations or stands along the road to protect the travelers as they, as they went south. And uh, there were a number of what they call public stands that were built by the government, leased out to uh, private individuals. I think Grinder Stand was probably one of those. And then the Chickasaw also opened other stands along the routes and they were called stands in part because travelers could purchase supplies there that they needed uh, along the along the road barry in your writing uh you had quoted a number of ads early ads that talked about some of these stands and and i was taken by the description that was often used they were called houses of entertainment (laughs) yes what does that mean what what is the entertainment any idea well apparently what passed for entertainment at that time was (laughs) was (laughs) <laughs> it's basically more necessity and you you need you need food you need a place to to rest you need to, a place to put up your horse it's a house of entertainment <laughs> yeah you'd be that's the happiest time of the day right if you can find a place where they can provide you with food and shelter yeah but the trace changed over time I mean, there were the early some earlier traveler accounts talked about it when it was a bridle path pretty much a horse trail and it was, they traveled through large desolate areas. In fact, the settlers called it the wilderness. But the road improved over time. You know, as when it was created to be a, a wagon highway, then it became more like other roads throughout the U.S. And the ends became more like other ends. In fact, there was, a, there was an inn in what's now Wayne County, uh, Young Factor Stand. And there's an account from the eight, around 1819. And they, they inventoried the items that they had. And they, they fed, they fed um, uh, travelers off fine china and, and crystal um, goblets mm-hmm. uh, and it was just like any other inn in the U.S. so if someone were to say what was it like to travel on I-65 you'd have to say well what year because right. it changed sure. and the Natchez Trace was the same uh, so there are early accounts when it was kind of a rough area with the bandits and the robbers but then it improved over time and it became a, a major highway that we're still driving on parts of it today right 
one of the one of the interesting things that I found in some of these accounts is that early on in the very beginning, uh, Native Americans along the the trace were very hospitable and were were ready to share, you know, what they had roasting ears, venison, what they had. But it wasn't long before they figured out that you could make money on this, and suddenly they had something to sell. Right, and so so wealth. Uh, follows that and that's why we're seeing that progression that you're describing that these early stands where you're lucky if you got some corn that had been ground up into powder to find china you know within within what time period are we talking about 20 20 year time period a 50 year time period well the the wagon road was they started construction on it 1801 so by 1820 they were they were serving the fine china they had brought furniture down from the inns in nashville and they called young factors a quote-unquote a fine house of entertainment right for, for travelers. Right. So we're seeing the wealth that's being built up as a result of the transportation. It's it's making business uh, uh, continue to grow. Farmers are finding a market for their for their products. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these cities like Natchez and Vicksburg and New Orleans are really reaping the, the benefits, as well as the farmers here in Murray County who, who have a, an easier market to, to be able to uh, get their, their products out to. And, and the Indians themselves are also developing the cotton industry. George Colbert had to, was one of the largest growers of cotton in the U.S. at the time. So I often tell people, you know, if, if uh, the Indian removal had not taken place, if you saw Gone with the Wind, George Colbert would have been Rhett Butler. Are there any original stands or sites of stands that you can visit if you go on the Natchez Trace today? Yes. Um, in Nashville, uh, there's Harding's stand, which is actually the, part of the Bellmead Plantation. His cabin is still there that was uh, used as a as a stand early on. Uh, In fact, the Dunham family was killed there by Creek Indians. Hmm. Um, And there's some other buildings along the trace that we think are probably stands in um, French camp. The old Masonic Hall has remnants of uh, the French camp stand. And there are other buildings along the route that are probably stands as well. Mount Locust, which has been restored, is, is, is built as the surviving stand on the Natchez Trace Parkway today. Do we, do we know how many stands at any given time, what the, the biggest number of them might it, have been? It varied. People opened houses, closed houses all the time. Yeah. It's like hotels today, sure. they open and close. But we, we left out the biggest stand. Well, the most local stand is the Gordon House. Right. right. And, of course, the house is still there. Uh, the, gov- the Park Service tore down the original stand um, around the 1970s, I think. It was a wooden building attached to the brick house. They assumed the wooden building was an add-on. And we, I think we know now that the, the wooden building was the original house and the brick house was the add-on. Right. Well, we're going to take another break. We have a lot more to cover, uh, including Lewis, uh, Meriwether Lewis, uh, Andrew Jackson's role, and why this road is called the Devil's Backbone. We'll be back after these messages. Don't go away. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. I'm Robert Rogers at Parks Motor Sales Buick GMC. Parks Motor Sales was founded by my granddad, Bobby Parks, and my great-granddad, Julian Mays, in 1958. We've been family-owned the whole time, and being family-owned, locally-owned, means you get to get your next vehicle or your existing vehicle serviced by the same people who stand in the grocery line with you, drop their kids off at the same school you do, and smile and are happy to see you when they do. So come see us at Parks Motor Sales in Columbia, Tennessee, on 919 Nashville Highway or ParksMotorSales.com. 
I'm Barbara Lincoln with Holland's Pharmacy. We have advertised with WKRM and WKOM for the past several years and found it to be very successful. I highly recommend advertising with them if you have a local business like ours. We're located at 1608 Hatcher Lane here in Columbia. We're open Monday through Friday from 8 to 6 and Saturdays from 8 to 2. Stop by Holland's for all your prescription needs where we have fast, friendly, courteous service. We custom fit support hubs for you also. Thanks for supporting Holland's and WKRM and WKOM. Hi, I'm Steve, the Garbage Man. Are you new to Murray County? We want to welcome you and your family. We are a local residential garbage service, and we want to be your garbage man. We've been around for over 30 years, so we have a reputation. Check us out at garbagemaninc.com or call Mike at 931-540-0919. You could also ask your neighbor. 931-540-0919. For 40 years, the Jewelers Bench has worked hard for their customers and provided the highest quality jewelry at the best price. They keep going back. Recent renovations have allowed them to expand their inventory. More high quality jewelry, custom vintage and estate pieces, and professional jewelry and watch repairs. They also buy gold. The Jewelers Bench, still here, still great service. 808 Trotwood Avenue, Columbia. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. We're talking today about the Natchez Trace. Uh, We're actually calling this show The Devil's Backbone, the history of the Natchez Trace. Uh, Where does it get the nickname? why, Why was it called The Devil's Backbone? Travelers called a lots of dangerous areas uh, the devil something at the time. It, the Mississippi River had the devil's elbow. It was one of it was a notorious passage, um, and they called it the devil's backbone because travel was so dangerous. Um, it followed generally the ridge lines, and so they thought of it as the backbone. But because there was very little law enforcement, because um, they had the had the travelers coming back up from Natchez carrying gold and silver, as Doctor Gickham described, that attracted highwaymen or, or robbers who would. Uh, find the, the, the travelers uh, coming up the trace that stands along the way, then follow them out into the, uh, into the wilderness where they were by themselves and kill them. And so there were no, lots of interesting stories about um, the, the bandits who became pretty notorious on the Natchez Trace. I brought with me actually a treasure from the Murray County Archives that, that speaks to this perfectly. So there was a, a court case that we came across uh, that's from 1813. And uh, I brought the court case, the, actually the, the original document. My, my staff would kill me if, if they know. Hopefully they won't listen to this. But uh, I brought it with me because I wanted to read the language a little bit so you can, can hear what they're writing. So this, this is an original uh, document. It's on uh, rag paper, so it feels like cloth. It's written in iron gall ink, so it's this rich brown ink, and it reads the following. The examination of Thomas Duffy of said county, being Murray, taken by virtue of my warrant charged with stealing a pair of saddlebags and a quantity of money from a Chickasaw Indian by the name of Tusk Tomby on the Natchez Road in said county near Joseph Mayer's this 18th day of October, 1813. So there's a whole backstory to this. And as you read this court case, they go into it a little bit. So this is actually the 
the judge quest questioning this Mr. Duffy. He had already questioned another character, uh, one of the accused. His name was John Campbell. And John Campbell, when asked if he had done this deed, he immediately said, no, I don't know anything about it. And then comes his, his partner in the crime, Mr. Duffy, and here's the first question. Question one, are you guilty of the crime charged against you? Answer, I am not guilty, but I confess I was present and know who'd done it and that it was John Campbell on the Natchez Road in said county that John Campbell and myself was at John Pruitt's on said road on Sunday sometime uh, in the, uh, the fore part of last winter. While we were there, an Indian passed by said Campbell, requested him to go home. We started, and on the way, Campbell wanted, uh, wondered, I think it was supposed to be, if we overtook said Indian for us to rob said Indian near Joseph Mayer's, he was on his, off his horse, appeared to be asleep, holding his horse by the bridle. Campbell requested me to take off the saddlebags and give them to him. I did so, and he rode off with them. I was very drunk at the time. So that's just question one, and, and this document is, is amazing. So do we know anything about Tuscumbi? Do we know? That is probably Chickasaw Chief Tuscumbia. Tuscumbia. He had a stand in what is now Wayne County. Uh, one of the primary Chickasaw chiefs. So that shows you how brazen the robbers were at the time. There's even an, another account of uh, robbers attacking Jackson soldiers coming back from the Battle of New Orleans. And one of the soldiers wrote about that. They nearly killed the soldiers. And they said, if these men would kill soldier, armed soldiers, you know, what would they do to the average citizen? That you know, Something has to be done with these robbers on the trace. So probably the most famous maybe the most famous event that happened on the Natchez Trace happened on October 11th, 1809 uh, at Grinder's Stand when Meriwether Lewis, uh, the famous explorer of the Lewis and Clark expedition, lost his life in what is now Lewis County, uh, Tennessee. Uh, can you explain the circumstances? Well, Meriwether Lewis was on the way back to Washington to defend his reputation. Uh, he had been accused of malfeasance in office as the territorial governor, governor of Louisiana Territory. And he was in the company. Uh, well, he had broken away from the group, uh, a larger group. He was in the company of a military officer. And he stops over at the stand, and uh, that would be Meriwether Lewis's last stop. And uh, uh, Tony, who grew up in Lewis County, I bet he'd love to pick up the story here. Well, what, what, all we know for sure is that Lewis died in an area known for robbery and murder. His money was missing. He was shot twice. His throat was cut, and he had wounds on his hands. And, and the officer who was with him, uh, Major James Neely, who was the Chickasaw agent, apparently sent a letter to Thomas Jefferson saying that Lewis had committed suicide. So when I give talks about this and there's a police officer in the audience, I often say, if you find a body in an area known for robbery and murder, the money's missing, the throat's been cut, there are two, wound, two gunshot wounds, is your first suspicion suicide? <laughs> and they, you know, that's the same reaction. They always laugh. Of course not. Um, I was able to show that the letter that supposedly was sent by this, this agent to Thomas Jefferson was actually a forgery because Major James Neely was not with Lewis the day that he died. He was actually in court in Franklin, Tennessee, being tried on a debt by a jury trial. And The, the letter is a forgery. The letter is a forgery. And, and the date the letter was written, supposedly written near Nashville, the real Major Neely wrote a letter to the, pres to the Secretary of War from the Chickasaw Agency, which was a good two or three days' ride south. And that letter 
written from the Chickasaw Agency did contain the actual agent's signature. This letter to Thomas Jefferson did not contain. Really? The, yeah. So why, why forge his name to a letter to the former president saying he committed suicide if he really committed suicide? Right. So what do you think? Clearly murder in your in your. Well, opinion. I think that's what the evidence points to. Now, uh, Jefferson accepted that it was a suicide. Clark accepted that it was likely a suicide because Lewis was under a great deal of pressure. But for me, one of the things I've discovered studying this history is that at that time, a man's reputation meant more to him than anything else. Lewis was traveling back to Washington to defend his reputation. Would he have taken his own life before he had a chance to defend himself, to, to clear his name? Right. So a lot of his closest friends noted that he had a tendency towards uh, maybe depression. Uh, do, you, do you put well, any credence in, in well, those? Well, Jefferson said that he had been known to have bouts of melancholy and that some of the family had been known. But I think it's, it's like today, you know, when, when we hear that someone has committed suicide, a lot of people will say, well, oh, I remember now when they did this or did that. We should have seen it coming. Sure. Those weren't things they talked about at the time. Jefferson, I think, would never have appointed Lewis to be head of the Lewis and Clark expedition if he thought, you know, Lewis was would have taken his life. Yeah, sure. it was unstable. Sure. Fascinating. So you have any thoughts on, on who, who might have done it? Well, there is. Neely himself is suspect? Uh, Neely's a suspect because uh, he, was, he was afraid of losing his job. I think he had abandoned Lewis. To, to attend this court case, and he admitted he wasn't, and this letter said he wasn't with him. Um, so that's one suspect. Uh, the grinders have been accused for years of, of being involved. I'd really doubt that they were, but there was a man living with the grinders at the stand, uh, Thomas Runyon's, who was a known highway bandit. And uh, Runyon's family carried the story down for years that he was the one who actually killed Lewis. Hmm. And uh, I think there was a coroner's inquest from Murray County, uh, an inquest over the body, and the the inquest foreman carried a, a pocket journal with him, and he kept notes of the inquest. They disappeared around 1900, but the descendant of that foreman um, has I said, well, you know, what what is the your family story of what happened to him? And he said they always said it was Runyon's, and so here's two families who carried the same story down for 200 years, um, and I don't think they would have done that unless there's something to it. Well, and and the the mistress of the stand, her, her account of what happened uh, was was pretty unbelievable. And, and in fact, and if, even if they didn't have anything to do with it, they may have had something to do with covering up what actually what actually happened. You remember, I think it was about twenty five years ago. When in Lewis County they convened another coroner's inquiry, uh, and uh, and sent a request to the National Park Service to exhume Meriwether Lewis's body to try to determine whether or not he committed suicide or was murdered. And of course, the National Park Service said no. Yeah, I, I was the alternate the juror on that grand jury or coroner's coroner's jury. Uh, it was a fascinating because they they did. Uh, they did tests, you know, with bullets and then gelatin uh, bodies and that sort of thing. And the family's still interested in exhuming the body to determine what happened to him. They're, they're still pushing for that to happen. Is it true that the National Park Service is dead set against that because they're not 100% sure his body is under that monument? That may be part of it, and I, I, I can't go into the reason why that is. I think they're wrong based upon um, what we found at the Murray County Archives. Uh, there was, they, there's a map 
that indicates that there was another place where Lewis traditionally was buried. But the earliest map of Murray County from around 1830 shows Grinder's Stand being the southwestern corner of Murray County. If you look at the old Indian treaty, that bears mm-hmm. out. And it shows on that map, it says Lewis's Gro- Lewis Grove, but it's actually Lewis's Grave. Grave. And so in 1830, everyone knew Lewis's grave was right there. And so there's, I don't think there's any question he was buried there. So I think in 1849, they placed a monument over where they believed him to be to be buried. And you can visit that site today on the Natchez Trace. It's a, a wonderful park. Uh, and the thing that <laughs> strikes me is in this beautiful field. Uh, it's, a, it's a broken column monument, a life cut short and then you, you read the inscription on it, and you realize he was only 35 years old mm-hmm. at the time of his death. The man who walked across the continent uh, and had such a huge impact on American history and westward expansion, uh, what a life he led in 35 years, and uh, what a terrible tragedy the way he went. But yeah. you can see it on the Natchez Trace uh, if you go there today. I think Jefferson was grooming him to become president. He had been his private secretary, right, right? in the White House. Uh, so he, he had the connections, most certainly. Uh, he had had sort of done the deeds that people would recognize as heroic that would certainly elevate him in, in the political realm. Uh, I think it bolsters your argument that suicide just doesn't make, make any sense. That and the fact that he was shot twice, once in the head, mm-hmm. his throat cut, uh, suicide becomes, becomes a problem. We're going to have to take another break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about Andrew Jackson and the War of 1812 with the Natchez Trace. We'll be back on History's Hook in just a moment. Don't go away. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. Every morning, I park my car across the street from my business, and I can't wait to get in there. That's pretty common for small business owners. We have the added satisfaction, however, of guiding hundreds of families with their retirement, education, savings, and general investments. We're a locally owned business that tries very hard to simplify a complicated world. This is Monty Sneed from Caledonian Financial in Historic downtown Columbia. Securities and investment advisory services offered through NBC Securities Incorporated, member FINRA and SIPC. Hello, my name is Connor Mims. My wife Bradley and I live in Columbia, Tennessee in Riverside. I am a deck and porch builder and my wife is a second grade teacher at Riverside Elementary. My specialty is designing and building elegant and comfortable porches and decks. Let me work with you to design and build the porch or deck of your dreams. Give us a call today from our website, MimsModernLandscape.com. That's MimsModernLandscape.com and check out what we have to offer. Thanks. Columbia Foodland is a locally owned and operated family grocery store with a full line of dry, dairy, frozen meat and produce items. We focus on keeping the freshest hand-cut meat and produce items daily with the most competitive prices in town. We offer weekly ad specials as well as in-store weekly specials throughout the store. Located at 427 West 7th Street in Columbia in the former Harris Foodland location. Columbia Foodland. We are here and ready to serve the wonderful people of Columbia and the surrounding areas. The NASCAR Xfinity Series. Green flag is in the air. The field comes hurtling down the main straightaway. Heads north to Chi-Town. This one is not over. Nemechek beats Creed in the left-hand turn six. Creed hits Nemechek back. For a street racing adventure down Lakeshore Drive. Custer's got the command out in front. Allgaier's on his bumper, but he's not going to get there. It's the Loop 121. Saturday, July 1st at 3.30 p.m. on WKOM 101.7 FM. 
History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back. Uh, We're talking today about the Natchez Trace and its role in American history. We talked about the fact that the Trace came about publicly as a post road, covertly as a military road. Let's talk for a minute about the Natchez Trace and how it played a critical role in the War of 1812. Tony, can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, I think I think Jefferson's vision proved to be correct during the War of 1812 when the British attacked at New Orleans. Uh, one of the people living in the New Orleans area said it would be like if they were able to successfully invade New Orleans, it would be like breaking the lock of the Mississippi Valley and they could just come right on up the Natchez Trace and, and take away Tennessee and, and Kentucky and Virginia. And that was the plan. There were British officers' letters that were found saying that was their whole idea. So they had to be able to move soldiers south along this road. And they were able to use the stands. They, they, they dug wells for the have water for the soldiers at places where they needed them. So by the War of 1812, they were able to use this wagon highway to transport soldiers. Jackson first took advantage of it in uh, 1813, the first time the Tennessee Volunteers were called out to go south uh, to defend the, 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 the army there. Um, that, that one didn't work out. Uh, Jackson got into a fight with the general in charge of the U.S. Army, General James Wilkinson, who happened to be a spy for our enemy, Spain. They called him Agent 13 on their payroll. And and when Wilkinson found out Jackson was going south with these soldiers, he tricked him into stopping short at Natchez, put him into this fort called Cantonment, Washington, that was essentially a trap. So he took the, started taking the food and the medicines away. The Tennessee volunteers started to die. And then Wilkinson had this order delivered, supposedly from the Secretary of War, that was probably a forgery telling Jackson he was dismissed from service 500 miles from home. He was just to abandon these soldiers. And most of these were young teenage boys, some as young as 12 years old, the drummers were. They had never been away from home before. Jackson had promised to be a father to them. And one of the biographers says Jackson looked out at his camp, and these young boys looked at Jackson with tears in their eyes, reminded him that he promised to be a father to them, and begged him not to abandon them. And that's the only time I've read that Andrew Jackson cried when he realized he had brought these boys into this trap and his decision might have led to the deaths of all these boys. But he had to make it his choice. He either had to disobey this order and face a firing squad. That was the penalty, a soldier said, or let these boys die. He decided he would not abandon these boys. He would get them back home however he could. And so they marched you know, they these young boys back up the Natchez Trace with very little food. Uh, they just barely survived. He dismissed a lot of the soldiers here in Columbia on the way back. And when he got to Nashville to dismiss the final soldiers, everybody was just totally defeated. They thought this was the end of Andrew Jackson. He's led him away. Some of the soldiers have died. They've accomplished nothing for this. What they didn't realize was these young boys had not been soldiers. They didn't know how to take commands. Jackson had never led a command of soldiers before. This first mission on the Natchez Trace had been so arduous that by the time these boys came back, they were soldiers. They were ready to go. And just six months later, they got word that the Creeks had attacked the Fort Mims settlement. And Jackson called the soldiers out again, and because he did not abandon them, they did not abandon him. He was old hickory at that point. And they showed up, and then just a few months later, they went and whipped the British at the Battle of New Orleans within 30 minutes. Right. I don't think they would have been able to do that had it not been for the experience on the Natchez Trace. That was that was where they sort of learned soldiering, hard soldiering, was in right. that sort of failed ex- first expedition. Your description of the mustering in Nashville is wonderful in your book and how in the midst of this blizzard, these young men are coming from all over the all over the state uh, to muster up together uh, before they head down on the Natchez Trace. It's a, it's a wonderful description in your book. Uh, makes you feel like, like you're there. Um, well done on that. The, uh, you. 
one of the things that surprised me about Jackson is his business connection to the Natchez Trace. We talked about how people were putting up stands and they're starting to make money by selling goods to travelers, uh, but it's, an, it's a speculation opportunity for many as well, and Jackson takes advantage of that. Yeah, Jackson opened a store in Nashville. He wasn't really sure what his mission in life was going to be. He thought that was one way to, to achieve wealth. It didn't work out. But he opened a store in Nashville. Farmers would bring their farm products in. They would barter with Jackson. And then he would take those products and put them on, on flatboats and, and take them south to Natchez, where those, those goods were sold. And Jackson himself traveled the Natchez Trace several times, became very, very familiar with the people along the, the route. Well, the Natchez Trace is, is most certainly, and I, I think we've proven it today, and there's so much more that we could cover, but I think we've proven that the Natchez Trace is one of the most historic and historically significant uh, trails in the United States. Uh, and and we're so fortunate that the National Park Service has seen fit to preserve it. Uh, take the trip. Go that 400-plus miles uh, and travel along the route. You're going to learn an immense amount of history about our country uh, and we talked about some of the people associated from the tragic death of Meriwether Lewis to Jackson winning the sobriquet Old Hickory. Tennessee becomes a volunteer state as a result of, of the War of 1812 and it, certainly its connection to the Natchez Trace. So, so take that trip. Tony, where can listeners find your book? You can find it locally here in, in Columbia at Duck River Books, and you can also find it online. Wonderful. Uh, and the title of it, one more time, is, is Hardened to Hickory, the Missing Chapter in Andrew Jackson's Life. I'd like to thank our guest, Tony Turnbow, for sharing his uh, expertise with us today. I want to end uh, this uh, program with an excerpt from the letter uh, written by Thomas Jefferson after he heard about the death of his good friend, Meriwether Lewis. He wrote, About three o'clock in the night he did the deed which plunged his friends into affliction and deprived his country of one of her most valued citizens, whose valor and intelligence would have been now employed in avenging the wrongs of his country and in emulating by land the splendid deeds which have honored her arms on the ocean. It lost, too, in the nation the benefit of receiving from his own hand the narrative now offered them of his sufferings and successes in endeavoring to extend for them the boundaries of science and to present to their knowledge that vast and fertile country which their sons are destined to fill with arts, with science, with freedom, and happiness. Those are the words of Thomas Jefferson about his good friend, Meriwether Lewis. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Barry Gidcombe, as always, as our co-host uh, for this uh, show. Thank you for listening today. We'll be back next week with another edition of History's Hook. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Be sure to join us every Saturday at 9 a.m. and again at 6 p.m. right here on WKOM 101.7 FM for a journey through time. This is Coach Jadaris Goff from Columbia Central Football, and you are listening to the home of the Columbia Central Lions 1340 and 103.7 WKRM. Farmer Johnny here, Taylor Family Farm. I want to give you all a little look-see. We raise 100% non-GMO, grass-fed beef, pasture chicken, and pork on our family farm. Everything that we grow is raised with love and care to ensure the highest quality and nutrition for our family and customers. You can shop online at taylorfamilyfarmtn.com or visit our farm store in person at Etheridge, Tennessee at 301 Dave Reisner Road. That's taylorfamilyfarmtn.com for more information. This is Bob Kessling with Pat Ryan. It's a beautiful day for digging. 
The backhoe operator has the engine running and is moving into position. He's heading for the ground. He's in there. Wait, there's a flag on the play. Let's get out of the field for the call from our official. Illegal procedure on the digging team. Oh, that penalty could cause a costly accident. That's right, Bob. He needs to call before he digs. There's underground utility lines that could be hiding just below the surface. Water, sewer, electrical, communication lines, and even natural gas. Avoid a penalty by first calling 811 to have any underground public utility lines located and marked with flags or paint. It's free, it's easy, and it's the law. For more tips, visit pipesafety.org. This message brought to you by the Tennessee Association of Broadcasters and the Tennessee Gas Association, funded in part by a grant from the Underground Utility Damage Enforcement Board. Hello, it's me, Terry Tillis from Tillis Jewelry. July reminds me of red, white, and blue. If you were born in July, your birthstone is the ruby king of the precious stones for its rarity hardness second only to diamonds we have a beautiful collection from earrings to rings modern and antique if you were born in july we'll take 10 percent off your purchase follow us on facebook and instagram Two white men and a white woman attacking a black man who's a Democrat. You act like a bunch of Southern disgusting human beings. You need to get off the there. Dude number one, Mr. Jim York. Hey, Del, you made a comment and called me a jackass yesterday. Well, it, it, there was a uh, that was a friendly comment. Uh, that, okay, uh, but but that go ahead and, and seal my faith as being a Democrat. You know, we got a jackass as a symbol, right? <laughs> yeah, right. So I'm a true Democrat, buddy. So okay. it wasn't a put down from my perspective. It was a peg up. So that's, thanks a lot. That's the way to go. <laughs> Just own it. Yes, sir. Three dudes with a view triggering liberals between Dollywood and Graceland Monday through Thursday from 8 to 9 a.m. right here on WKOM 101.7 FM. Have you heard the news? The Big Yellow School Bus, Murray County Public Schools talk radio show and podcast on 101.7 FM WKOM. Visit the podcast by going to thebigyellowschoolbus.com to listen to podcasts that are archived also at frontporchradiotn.com. The Big Yellow School Bus with Jack Cobb and friends on Front Porch Radio Saturdays at 10 a.m. on WKOM 101.7 FM. Did you know that 70% of Americans age 65 or older will need some form of long-term care in their lives? And even more frightening, 7 out of 10 people who go into long-term care will become completely impoverished within one year. It doesn't need to be that way. You do not need to go broke in the nursing home. Call Perchowski Estate Law to learn how you can protect your life savings and hard-earned property from the high cost of long-term care. Call me at 931-363-7222. Having a tough time finding the right people for the job? Well, maybe it's time to take a second look at who you're hiring. Look beyond the wall. Unlock talent by hiring someone with a record. They did their time, and now you can take them from justice to a job. Get tax credits, training dollars, and protection bonds. The Tennessee Office of Reentry can show you how second chances work. Learn more at tnworkready.com. Brought to you by the Tennessee Department of Labor and Workforce Development, the Tennessee Association of Broadcasters, and this station. 
the NASCAR Cup Series. Green flag just moments away, and it's in the air, and we are underway. Heads to the Windy City. Oh, one car gets turned. Around it into the outside wall goes Michael McDowell. For a historic street race on the banks of Lake Michigan. Step off, turn number four. Kyle Busch looks up, sees the checkered flag. Kyle Busch will win. It's the Grant Park 220. 3.30 p.m. Sunday, July 2nd on WKOM 101.7 FM. This message is from the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. Veterans, you may be eligible for major financial compensation based on your service-connected disability, but be wary of the many groups that may try to exploit you for financial gain. Report suspected fraud at va.gov oig hotline. Learn about VA's list of accredited organizations at va.gov. This is Trip Stoltz with Columbia Ace Hardware. I love listening to 101.7 WKOM-FM, Columbia, Tennessee.